What we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. Welcome to another episode from the WW Radio Archives. I am Lou Mangello, and this is show number 746. And each week or so, I'm gonna select an evergreen episode from the archives to share that maybe you haven't heard before, or one that you haven't heard in a long time, from interviews to top tens, relevant reviews, guides, Wayback Machines, and more. It's a great way to visit or revisit some of our favorite episodes, including ones that you have suggested that I share from the archives. And rather than upload the entire episode, I'm going to take out the relevant segment and then cut out the intro and outro and contest and some out-of-date news and rumors if they applied. And if you want to hear the full episode, I'm going to let you know the original show number so you can always go back into your podcast player or feed or www.radio.com and listen to the full episode. And for this week, with Walt Disney World's anniversary coming up on October 1st and this incredible sense of nostalgia and sentiment I've been feeling lately, that's what prompted my idea for this week's visit to the archives and this past week's live show. And, And if you joined us live, thank you so much for tuning in and being part of the live show back on September 20th when we boarded the Wayback Machine and sort of took a trip down Walt Disney World's memory lane. We dove into some nostalgia as we shared memories of days gone by in Walt Disney World, and I shared a lot of vintage photos from the parks, including some of me back in the 70s, and we all shared our the attractions and shows and resorts and, of course, food that we remember. And you can watch the full replay and be part of the community and conversation just by going to wdwradio.com slash video. You'll find it right there. But... That also kind of got me thinking about the origins of Walt Disney World and some of the inspirations behind it. So this week, we're going to go back to show number 179 from early 2010. I can't believe it was 13 years ago. Because Walt Disney World traces so much of its roots to the original Disneyland in California. And with Walt Disney World's anniversary coming up on October 1st, I think it's only appropriate that we take a look at how some of Disneyland's origins impacted Walt Disney World. And Jim Corcus joined me again to share some of the true stories behind the stories as we start in Fantasyland with Cinderella Castle and look back at exactly how and where Disneyland began. And Jim shared not just stories that really hadn't been told before, but Walt's own words that served as the proposal for what would become Disneyland and some of the many amazing ideas that carried forward to become what we see today in Walt Disney World. After you listen to the episode, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can share them over in the clubhouse at www.radio.com slash clubhouse or call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. I'd also love to connect with you on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on all the social channels. But right now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. Thank you. Thank you. 
July 17th, 2010 is going to mark the 55th birthday of Disneyland in California. And you say, well, that's great, Lou, but this is the WDW radio show, and we talk about Walt Disney World primarily. But you have to remember that Walt Disney World's roots truly lie in Anaheim, California, and with Walt Disney, and with so much that was designed and developed for there. And so with the 55th birthday coming up, I started to think about that history and its ties to Walt Disney World and maybe telling some of those stories that you might not have heard before and how they affected what we have here in Lake Buena Vista, Florida. And as always, when we look to tell some of those maybe untold stories and the stories behind the stories, you know I need to bring in the one person that is able to tell them through his personal knowledge and experience and expertise. And that is, of course, our good friend, Mr. Jim Corcus. And, Lou, why is it whenever I get pulled out for these things, it's either pouring rain or, like today, there's heat and humidity. We just saw this little girl walk by who is beet red, look like a, a, a lobster. I'm going to call child services for me that you pulled me out here. We're actually in the uh, uh, courtyard of the Magic Kingdom. And, again, I'm a California boy. I grew up in California going to Disneyland. And coming out to the Magic Kingdom for the first time was a Twilight Zone experience because there's so many things that are so similar but so many things that are so different. So I'm coming through the castle and figure, well, I'll go to the left and I'll go to the Pinocchio ride. And people are looking at me like, what Pinocchio attraction? There's no Pinocchio. And... Um, there are significant differences. There's even significant differences in terms of, of story. And one of the reasons we're in the courtyard over here and we're standing in this section that looks like a circular compass, you know, with different directions, is once again, guests are walking by something, which is very important to tell the story of uh, fantasy land, uh, and uh, especially the fantasy land of uh, Walt Disney World. Um, so uh, you will notice on the edge of the circle... There's this um, entwined metalwork that uh, literally acts as a drain, but it is a, it is a theme. That is a Celtic circle, and so literally the thread of life weaves in and out and in and out and comes back to the original source. But you'll notice that there are several threads doing that because the story here in Fantasyland is of many cultures intertwined. The stories of Italy, the stories of Germany, the stories of the UK, uh, the stories of America. And so this is the theme, and it's large, and it's there, and it's completely ignored. But I know that this is not random, other than the fact that, of course, I, I, I was told this by Imagineers, and I love sharing these stories with with other people. I don't even know if there are Imagineers still working for the company who, who know this story, but there is one other section in Fantasyland that has this same Celtic circle. And I, I think you passed by it today. Where is it, Lou? <laughs> it is in front of, appropriately enough, It's a Small World. And you want to know how I know that? Because you told me today, and, that's, and I refuse to pretend that I knew that because, again, this is why... You're so fascinating because you know these things. And look, I, I love trying to find the, the stories and the meaning behind things. And yes, I've looked at this compass and said, why is this here? And what does this mean? And never even thinking about the drain around it. And then it's connections to the one other place. So again, an aha moment a minute in. Well, you know, I may be fascinating, but I'm still going home alone tonight. <laughs> you, you've got a wife and, and wonderful children. 
all I have to look forward to is if I have a heart attack in the middle of the night, the cockroaches eat for the next week. Uh, well, but just yeah. so you know, I didn't get my wife by saying, hey, honey, do you know what the, the circle around this compass means? It hasn't worked for me either. So that No, so the Celtic Circle is also out in front of uh, Small World because that's the host pavilion, all of the cultures together. You won't find that Celtic Circle anywhere else. So, again, this is an aha that you can share with your friends and family, and I, and I hope you will. You know, but we're looking at this magnificent castle. This was designed by Herb Ryman, a, a, a terrific artist. And some of you know, uh, because we're also talking about Disneyland and Disneyland's relationship with uh, Walt Disney World, that Herb Ryman also um, designed Sleeping Beauty's Castle uh, for Disneyland. And, of course, that went through a lot of different names. At one time, it was going to be Snow White's Castle. At one time, it was going to be Robin Hood's Castle, based on the live-action Disney film. That's why on opening day, you had Robin Hood and his Merry Men on the drawbridge. A lot of people don't realize that. So Two aha moments. <laughs> so it, uh, Herb designed that, but he also designed the artwork that literally sold Disneyland. And there's a wonderful story behind that. And we've actually got some special secrets that only Walt Disney World radio listeners will know. Because when I showed you a, a glimpse uh, earlier today, your eyes popped open and your mouth dropped. But I'm telling you this, Lou, I'm not going to share those. It's too hot. My clothes are sticking to me. I'm, I'm dripping. I don't even look good on a good day, and, and this is not just a bad hair day, this is a bad body day. So let's go to some place where there's air conditioning, okay? You got it. <laughs> so, Jim, you're, you're cool and you're fed. And, uh, and but I didn't get dessert, but I didn't get dessert. Well, we'll see how well you do in this segment <laughs> and what you bring to the table, because, you know, usually it's oh, trying to pull, yeah. you know, pulling, pulling teeth trying to get information out of yeah. you. So, but we got to start off with... I need to correct myself because I, I prefaced this segment by saying that Disneyland's birthday was, of course, July 17th, 1955. You literally slapped me about the face and head and said, Lou, you're completely wrong. As usual, you told me that the real birthday is September 26th, 1953. So explain to me the importance of that date and why it's not really July 17th, 1955. Well, it, it explains that Lou can be taught, uh, which, which I'm sure brings a great delight uh, uh, to your wife. Well, we, we all know that um, Walt was uh, always interested in building uh, some type of amusement venue. He was, al he was always upset that uh, tourism in California was increasing but basically what the tourists wanted to do was dip their toes in the uh, Pacific Ocean, um, uh, pick an orange, and uh, uh, go to Hollywood. And if you've been to Hollywood, it's a dirty, filthy place, and the stars aren't walking around, and only in the movies that happens. So Walt wanted some place when people came out that they could actually see something. So even as early as uh, uh, 1940, he was talking about uh, doing some type of... Um, amusement venue either at the studio or near the studio. Uh, by 1949, that had evolved into what was called the Mickey Mouse Park, which was going to be done on Riverside Drive, basically in the same area where the animation building is now and the Ventura Freeway. And that was only about 16 acres. And John Hench told me that many, because John Hench lived pretty near the studio, he said he'd, he'd be driving by or whatever, and he'd see Walt out in this vacant lot with his arms folded, looking around, you know, several Sundays. And um, he had Harper Goff uh, uh, working on some designs, but it just couldn't fit everything in. And, of course, 
what uh, drove a stake through that idea was they approached um, the uh, Burbank City Council, and Burbank City Council turned it down. They did not want a carnival in Burbank. And so even though this was Walt Disney, this sounded like a carnival to them, so not going to happen. Not going to happen at all. Bad move for Burbank. Great move for us. Absolutely, because then they started to find um, more land. And so um, starting in uh, early in 1953, Walt hired um, Dick Irvine and Marvin Davis, and they were both art directors at 20th Century Fox because Walt was having difficulty talking to architects and he felt they'd be able to act as a liaison and they weren't getting his ideas because, again, he wanted more of a, a filmatic experience and he felt that Irvine and Davis would be able to communicate that. So he did this on his own dime, his own payroll. He set up a little uh, building uh, right there by the uh, parking lot going into the studio and it was called the Zorro Building because he had purchased uh, the rights to Zorro as either a TV series or a feature because it was going to generate uh, revenue for Imagineering. And so he's got uh, Irvine and um, Davis in, the, in this uh, building, and it, it, it really is just one step above a, a trailer type thing because Davis said it was hot in the summer and cold in the winter, and there were just these little offices. And what was happening, too, was Walt was buying antique furniture for the Zorro thing and he was storing it in the Zorro building so there was a complete dinette set of dark wood that was time period appropriate and chairs and tables and shoving in against uh, the drafting boards. They had a huge storyboard where they were mapping out uh, with pieces of paper different types of attractions and ideas uh, that could be done and of course all of this was done by um, the Walt's personal group, which was called WDI, and we know that WDI stands for. It has to stand for Walt Disney Imagineering, doesn't it, Jim? Well, <laughs> actually, it's too it, too soon. It stood for Walt Disney Incorporated, which was Walt's personal company. And of course, the stockholders and the board of directors hit the roof because even Walt's contract said that. He, he could do personal projects on the outside, but they felt calling something Walt Disney Incorporated was going to create confusion in the marketplace with Walt Disney Productions. And so Walt later, um, in uh, November 1953, changed the name to WED for Walter Elias Disney, which was, again, really the official beginning of, a, of Imagineering. But again, WED, John Hench said, they were constantly getting calls from people who thought it was a wedding company and, and can you plan out our wedding? Not at Imagineering rates. Okay, so anyway, it came time where Walt needed to get funding for uh, his project. So the reason the real birth of the project was September 26, 1953, that was a Saturday morning. And so uh, Herb Ryman had worked at the Disney Studios as an art director. He worked on Dumbo, uh, Fantasia, Saludos Amigos. He left the studio, I think, around 1947, and he went to 20th Century Fox, where he was working as an art director. So he knew Dick Irvine and Marvin Davis. And then for the last year, he was on a special commission from John Ringling North to travel with the circus and do circus paintings of Emmett Kelly and, and all of these things. So it was a, a Saturday morning, 10 a.m., and uh, the phone rings. 
And so he picks it up, and it's Dick Irvine on the phone. And Dick says, uh, "said uh, Herbie, Walt would like to talk to you uh, about." Uh, and Walt grabbed the phone from him and said, uh, 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 "Herbie, how long would it take you to get to the studio?" And Herb says, uh, "This is Saturday. What are you doing at the studio?" And Walt goes. Well, this is my studio. I can be here on a Saturday. I can be here on a Sunday. I can be here anytime I want. And and to hear Herbie tell this story, it's just hilarious because he really captures Walt's, uh, you know, incense. How could you possibly be questioning me? And he says, well, how long will it take you to get down here? And Herb says, um, well, I, I could probably get there in about 15 minutes. He says, uh, but I, I really need to shave and, and take a bath and get dressed. So maybe about a half hour, 40 minutes. And Walt said, forget about all that. Just come as you are right now. I'll meet you out, out in front. Well, you know, I wish uh, Herbie was still alive so that he could tell this story himself because he was a marvelous storyteller. And, and he'd do this with just a, a, a sly look on, on, on his face. And it's just hilarious. So he comes to the studio. Walt meets him on the street, takes him into the Zorro building. And he says, uh, uh, Herbie, we're walk- working on this uh, special uh, uh, project, uh, you know, this live entertainment uh, venue. And my brother Roy is going to New York on Monday uh, to try and convince the money men to uh, invest. Um, and But you know that these guys don't have a, a, a sense of imagination, so it needs something visual to show them. So that they can understand, you know, uh, what this project is all about. And uh, Herb says, well, where's the drawing? I'd love to see it. And uh, Walt says, you're going to do it. And Herb immediately says, no, absolutely not. He says, you cannot call me in on a Saturday morning to work on a project where, where it, so much is riding on it. And your brother's got to take it in Monday and... It'll just embarrass me, and it'll embarrass you. I, I just can't do it. And so Walt sent um, Irvine and uh, Davis outside the building, and so, he... Go ahead. So it wasn't him saying, you know, he wasn't saying no to Walt. He was saying, this is not what you want to do. It wasn't sort of a, hey, look, it's Saturday. I'm, you know, I'm not going to work on a Saturday afternoon. No, it, it, it was this is too big a project and I don't want to be held responsible for, you know, it, it falling a, a apart because being called in at the last minute to do this, I'd like some time to, to study this. And this is the first time I've ever heard of it. And, um, you know, it all seems so nebulous because by this time, Marvin Davis had uh, drawn uh, 133 different versions of Disneyland. Um, it was Davis who came up with that uh, uh, pear shape, that triangle pear shape, uh, uh, there and so you know some of those uh, drawings were, were were there and the elevations the whole bit and so again Walt sent Irvine and Davis uh, outside the building and he's walking around with his arms crossed which is not a good sign with Walt if his eyebrow goes up if his arms are crossed he's tapping no this is not good and so he's standing by this window with his back towards Herb and Herb says he just turned his face to Herb and Herb could see. Walt's eyes tearing up, and Walt says, will you do it if I stay with you while you're doing it? And Herb says, I could see that this was so important to him, and so I just couldn't say no. And um, so Walt uh, had uh, Irvine and Davis show them the initial things they had done on Disneyland and then sent them away, and then Walt ordered in uh, tuna sandwiches and malted milk. 
So you want to create your own Disneyland, uh, tuna sandwiches and malted milk. And so for the next 42 hours, it was just Herb and Walt in that room and Walt describing what he wanted and Herb drawing this. Now, the, the sketch, and this is a large drawing. It's uh, 39 inches high, which is about three feet, and 67 and a half wide, so that's about five and a half feet uh, wide. And uh, we've actually seen that drawing, haven't we? When we actually, uh, when you took us through Walt Disney One Man's Dream, as you go into that second section of exhibits, the doorways, the archways, has a large-scale version of that. And we talked a little bit about that, and hopefully people have gone and had a chance to see it, because they should to appreciate this story all the more. And um, so, yeah, in 42 hours, the drawing was done. Uh, Davis and Irvine come back, and uh, they see that, Herb and Walter just collapsed, and so they grabbed some color uh, pencils to add some texture and, and color uh, to the drawing, and sure enough, it was ready Monday morning for Roy uh, to take with him, so the 28th, take to New York and try and convince people you need to invest in this. So uh, it's a little unclear exactly who Roy saw. We know that he had discussions with uh, NBC, which was the biggest network, at the time, they had like 64 affiliates and CBS that had uh, 30-some affiliates. They didn't even talk to ABC because ABC had like 12 affiliates. They're like the DuPont network, which nobody knows uh, uh, anymore. But you also talked to bankers and all of this. And, of course, you can't send Roy to New York just with this picture because nobody can sell the concept like Walt. Nobody can pitch like Walt. So one of the things that they sent along with Roy was something that Walt put together, which was an eight-page pitch for Disneyland. And again, this was written primarily by Walt because, you know, Marty Scalar hadn't been hired yet. Jack Spears, who did uh, wrote a lot of the narration for the Disney TV show. Disney D TV show didn't even exist yet. Uh, Joe Reddy in publicity may have helped uh, 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 tweak, wordsmith some of this. But this is basically Walt's vision of Disneyland, and what is amazing, and that's why I'm glad uh, we got together uh, uh, today, is I recently found a copy of that 1953 pitch, and so as a uh, special gift uh, to celebrate Disneyland's uh, 55th, and as a special treat for um, the listeners of WDW Radio, we're going to read some of Walt's original pitch from 1953 of what Disneyland was going to be like, and we're going to talk back and forth. And this is where it becomes so fascinating, because I think a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, I know the story. We know, mm -hmm. we heard the story at One Man's Dream of Walt, you know, of Roy going with this, this, uh, this sketch that they, that they worked on all weekend long, and, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I had never heard, I think most people never knew that there was some associated documentation that went along with it. And to know that it, that it exists is one thing. To have a copy of it, and as, as you gave me a chance to look through it, it, it wasn't past the second sentence that you get such a sense of the importance of this and knowing that it came from Walt's own words. And it's, it wasn't written by somebody else makes it all that more... Special, magical, important, whatever you want to call it. So uh, please, and again, the first page alone, the first two sentences alone, 
um, are, are really something fascinating. So go ahead and, and 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 I know that when you first read the document, you were blown away by that. The first page literally is just two paragraphs, and I think we should have Lou read this. Oh. You honor me by giving me the. Uh, so again, on a on a plain sheet of white paper, there's no letterhead. There's nothing to it. Uh, it says Walt Disney in bold letters, and I, in italicized all capitals, it says. Sometime in 1955, we'll present for the people of the world and to children of all ages a new experience in entertainment. In these pages is proffered a glimpse into this great adventure, a preview of what the visitor will find in, and on a separate line all by itself, Disneyland. I know. Just, just amazing. And uh, again, that's something that you would do in a document is, is just do that little brief thing to capture people's imagination. This, this is what we want to do. And on the second page, of course, this uh, gets more elaborate. Um, and we're not going to read the entire document. We're just going to read some excerpts from it. But uh, Walt felt, and, and this is directly from the second page, Disneyland will be something of a fair, an exhibition, a playground, a community center, a museum of living facts, and a showplace of beauty and magic. It will be filled with the accomplishments, the joys and hopes of the world we live in, and it will remind us and show us how to make these wonders part of our own lives. You know, and Walt really, truly believed this, and this is what he wanted for Disneyland. And as the construction started in 1954 and all of this, this is one of the things that help make decisions. Does this get built this way? Does this happen that way? And it's so powerful because, again, he needs to synopsize in five paragraphs what his vision of Disneyland will be. And when, and you know, I, I think we should maybe read the rest of this page because sitting here in Walt Disney World and knowing what his eventual plans were for Epcot, the city, to hear some of these things come from his mind and, and from his pen. Uh, is really a glimpse into his vision long-term of the future well, because he goes on to say, it's a place for parents and children to share pleasant times in one another's company, a place for teacher and pupils to discover greater ways of understanding and education. Here, the older generation can recapture the nostalgia of days gone by and the younger generation can savor the challenge of the future. Here will be the wonders of nature and man for all to see and understand. Disneyland will be based upon and dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and hard facts that have created America, and will be uniquely equipped to dramatize these dreams and facts and send them forth as a source of courage and inspiration to the world. Disneyland will be something of a fair, an exhibition, a playground, a community center, like I said, a museum of living facts, a showplace of beauty and magic. It'll be filled with the accomplishments, the joys and hopes of the world we live in, remind us and show us how to make these wonders part of our own lives. And again, that first sentence so powerful, the idea of Disneyland is a simple one. It's a place for people to find happiness and knowledge. And all those things he talked about, education, his love of America, all those things carried forward to Disneyland, certainly found their way into Walt Disney World and Epcot. And... 
imagine how difficult this was because this had never, ever been done before. How do you sell something that had never been done before? Burbank obviously thought this was going to be a, a carnival. His wife thought it was going to be an amusement park. Why do you want to build an amusement park? They're filthy. They're noisy. And Walt says, I'm not building an amusement park. How do you convince people this is something different? You know, uh, Walt was such a visionary. And oftentimes it was difficult for him to express exactly what his, his vision was. Nowadays, oftentimes projects are sold by comparing them with, with uh, other projects. So, for instance, uh, the, star, the original Star Trek TV series was sold because Gene Roddenberry described it as Wagon Train to the Stars. Because Wagon Train was a very popular hour-long show. And what happened is you had a core of continuing characters, but you had different stories that were complete each week, and you could bring in guest stars and things like this. And, you know, they were all going on this particular journey that they never got to. Uh, longest wagon train in history. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but uh, here's Walt trying to explain this is not an amusement park. And again, the term theme park hadn't been invented yet, you know, so how do you explain that this is a a theatrical experience, a, a, a movie experience. And, uh, of course, one of the things that stayed consistent in all of his proposals, whether it was the Mickey Mouse Park or whatever, was, you know, a turn-of-the-century uh, Main Street and, of course, a train, you know. And, uh, in fact, he explained to Marvin Davis when Marvin Davis said originally, what is this supposed to look like? Walt said this should look like nothing else in the entire world and there should be a train going around it. And, and, and on the document, mm-hmm. on the document, the very first thing he enumerates is a train. It's not. It's it's the description of. So it shows the importance of having that train in all the parks. And obviously, again, we see a train in every one of the theme parks around the world. And it was Walt's intent that that train would be the preview, like coming attractions. You took the train around the park. So you saw what was there, so that helped you go decide where it was you wanted to go. And in fact, in the document here, it says the railroad train with its beautifully appointed coaches uh, takes you on a skyline tour around Disneyland where you will see from your window Main Street, True Life Adventure Land, The World of Tomorrow, Lilliputian Land, Fantasy Land, Recreation Park, Frontier Country, Treasure Island, the home of the Mickey Mouse Club, and Holiday Land, and back to the Civic Center with its town hall, which is the broadcasting theater for the Walt Disney Television Show. And again, we have some of those elements we see, but again, that vision that he had for what it would have been, obviously much more expansive than the five or six lands that Disneyland had, and we'll touch on some of the details of things like Lilliputian land and recreation land and the Mickey Mouse land. Fascinating how far forward thinking he was already at this time. And and supposedly it was Herbie that convinced him that, well, you're calling this Disneyland and you've got Fantasyland and you've got True Life Adventureland. Why do you have Frontier Country? Shouldn't that be Frontierland? And you've got World of Tomorrow. Shouldn't that be Tomorrowland? And, um, you know, it was constantly evolving, and, and it's interesting that you're mentioning that, yes, there are so many other lands that, that didn't happen, so it looks like Walt's tossing in everything but the kitchen sink. But if you go back, and there's plenty of books out there that have uh, Marvin Davis's uh, uh, original design for uh, the Disneyland that was being built in 1954, there are actually spokes from the hub that were never used. 
So obviously they were put in there in the hopes that this was going to develop. Now, one of the things that uh, we had a great uh, uh, chuckle at when we were reading this earlier is that on Main Street, there would be the Disneyland Emporium and there would be this mail order catalog. So try and imagine that today. I know a lot of you have been to the Emporium at Disneyland and and also at Walt Disney World. Uh, This was Walt's idea of what that Emporium was going to be. Uh, On the corner is the great Disneyland Emporium, where you can buy almost anything and everything unusual. Clothes, cowboy boots, toys, records, books, ceramics, old-fashioned candies, jawbreakers, and licorice whips. Toys from all over the world. Gifts for the person who has everything. Or you can get the big mail order catalog and purchase by mail. The mail order catalog will picture everything for sale in the Emporium or for sale any place in Disneyland. If you want a real pony and cart or a miniature donkey 30 inches high, you'll find it in the catalog. Or if you want the latest Disney book or toy, you can order by mail, and the gift will arrive wrapped in a special Disneyland paper bearing the postmark, Disneyland California, direct from the Disneyland U.S. Post Office. So I don't. So I'm smiling as you're reading that, not just because I love the way you read it. But I don't know what's most fascinating about that is his vision for the Emporium is not just a souvenir store, gifts from around the world, uh, you know, candy. Everything was sort of crammed into this one store or the fact that he had this idea, remember, folks, free Internet, free of sort of the, the Disney version of the Sears catalog. Anything that we have in the store. So imagine this fat, gigantic book with photographs of anything that you wanted to buy in any shop in Walt Disney World or Disneyland coming to your house, or you want to order a pony, you can order a pony. Um, again, the, the scope and the breadth of his vision, so forward-thinking, uh, had that ever... Now imagine, you know, that as a collectible if you had the Disneyland Emporium catalog at home. Well, imagine the collectible if you have that pony, you know, and, and, and especially if you had the original wrapping where it says Disneyland California, and the whole... Poked in it, but but again, that isn't as outrageous as it might seem. Because again, in the fifties, uh, you could often buy little chihuahuas that would fit in a teacup, and they'd chip it, or uh, turtles, uh, you know, uh, things like things like that. But yes, my gosh, if I had a Disneyland pony now, and an original, a fifty-five-year-old Disneyland pony, <laughs> you know, that 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 you can buy. So. Just absolutely uh, amazing. And, you know, it's important for us to um, realize, too, that Adventureland originated with the True Life Adventure series, you know, that uh, uh, Walt had, which was very popular, very popular documentary series. And up until that time, travel logs were not popular at all. they, They were sort of the drudge on on the market and true life adventureland brought in a a story and the lively music and uh the whole thing and in fact walt's original concept for the jungle cruise was going to be um real animals until it was pointed out to him that most of those animals are nocturnal so they'd be sleeping during the day and at one point somebody said but but walt a a leopard can leap 20 feet and walt said yes but the the boat's only going to be 10 feet away. It'll leap right over it. <laughs> so let's see what Walt had in mind for True Life Adventureland. Is entered through a beautiful botanical garden of tropical flora and fauna. Here you can see magnificently. 
Here you can see magnificently plumed birds and fantastic fish from all over the world and which may be purchased and shipped anywhere in the U.S. if you so desire. If you wish refreshments that are in uh, keeping uh, with your surroundings, there are fresh pineapple sticks, crisp coconut uh, meals, and exotic fruit punches made from fresh tropical fruits. Uh, a river borders the edge of True Life Adventureland where you can embark in a colorful explorer boat with a native guide for a cruise down the river of romance. As you guide through the Everglades past birds and animals living in their natural habitat, alligators lurk along the banks and otters and turtles play in the water around you. Monkeys chatter in the orchid-flowered trees. Uh, again, not what we ended up with at the Jungle Cruise, but eventually, decades later, his idea of sort of not a safari on the water, but a safari on land comes to be where we do get real animals over at Disney's Animal Kingdom. So again, wasn't able to implement it initially in 55, 30-some-odd years later, his idea finally comes true. And, and again, uh, basically, Walt always had ideas, but sometimes the technology... Uh, wasn't there, you know, to make those uh, come up. So, yes, fresh pineapple sticks. So I guess Dole was already uh, in there, you know. The only thing we're missing is the Dole whip. Now, for the World of Tomorrow, this is the home of the exciting World of Tomorrow television show, which I never heard of before in my life. A moving sidewalk carries you effortlessly into the world of tomorrow where the fascinating exhibits of the miracles of science and industry are displayed. The theme for the world of tomorrow is the factual and scientific exposition of things to come. Um, among the exhibits that will change from time to time are the mechanical brain, a diving bell, monorail train, the little parkway system where children drive scale model motor cars over a modern freeway. Models of an atomic submarine. A flying saucer. The magic house of tomorrow. With mechanical features that obey the command of your voice like a genie. You say please and the door opens. A polite thank you will close it. There are shops for the scientific toys, chemical sets and model kits. Here, the imaginative boy will find a space helmet to suit his needs for interplanetary travel. And if you are hungry, conveyor belts will carry your food through the electronic cooking device of tomorrow, where you will see it cooked instantly to your liking. So, is, am I the only one, as you and it started to describe this area of exhibits, it wasn't Tomorrowland he was describing, he was describing Communicore, uh, and he was describing Interventions, Eventually, I think he was describing a microwave oven. But, but, <laughs> but again, you know, it's not what we got in, in Tomorrowland per se, but it was his vision of what the kind of edutainment that he was going to bring to people that eventually, I think, became Communicore. And again, with the early uh, shows on the Disneyland uh, TV show that Ward Kimball uh, made, you know, Mars and Beyond, those things, it was very important in those shows for Walt to emphasize that this is science factual, not science fictional. So that's why it's amazing to me that he's including a flying saucer because uh, he wanted it to be the future that's just around the corner, uh, not the future of uh, Flash Gordon and, and Buck Rogers. A lot of times people forget that Walt um, was almost in his 40s when uh, Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon came out. So 
I wonder how it would have affected him if he had been a, a 10-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid, but he had gone beyond that sense of wonder for that. It was more amazing to him the actual things that uh, uh, could have happened. So, but, but again, amazing to me, a house of tomorrow, which, of course, the Monsanto house came so much later, atomic submarine, the, the whole bit. Again, so many ideas pouring out of the, this man that it, it's just amazing. Now, between Tomorrowland and Fantasyland was going to be Lilliputian land. Walt loved miniatures, of course. Uh, he had the miniature railroad uh, uh, behind his house, the Carrollwood Pacific. Walt made miniatures. Um, and so there was going to be the Lilliputian land. And for those of you who, that seems to ring a bell, but you don't know, uh, Lilliput was from the novel uh, Gulliver's Travels, where Gulliver went and uh, uh, all of these uh, tiny uh, uh, people uh, were there. Lilliputian land, a land of little things, a miniature Americana village inhabited by mechanical people nine inches high who sing and dance and talk to you as you peek through the windows of their tiny shops and homes. Oh, no. What? Uh, it's a small world here? Okay. In Lilliputian land, there is an Erie Canal barge that takes you through the famous canals of the world where you will visit the scenic wonders of the world in miniature. Here, a little diamond stack locomotive engine, 17 inches high, steams into the tiny railroad station. You sit on top of the Pullman coaches like Gulliver, and the little nine-inch engineer pulls back the throttle, taking you on the biggest little ride in the land. And for the little people who have little appetites, you can get miniature ice cream cones or the world's smallest hot dog on a tiny bun in Lilliputian land. I mean, it's, it's funny because it almost seems like a gag. It almost yeah. seems like a gag attraction. Uh, to have. I mean, obviously, we got nothing like that other than maybe the, the concept of a small world going through. But, uh, you know, imagine sort of riding like Walt did and his friends did on the Carrollwood, sort of sitting on top of these cars as they went around. Obviously, that's where his inspiration came from. And, and again, this vision did uh, come out because, uh, again, we decided to eat off property because uh, we didn't want the Lilliputian hot dog for 50 bucks on Walt Disney World property. And again, if anybody's listening out there, I'm just joking. I'm just joking uh, for that to, to happen. Now, Fantasyland is a wonderful land of fairy tales come true within the walls and grounds of a great medieval castle whose towers loom 70 feet in the air. In the middle of the castle grounds stands a magnificent carousel in the theme of King Arthur and his knights. Now remember, this is 1953, and this is pretty clear that Walt wanted a merry-go-round there. Uh, he talks about a ride-through of Snow White. He talks about a fly-through with uh, Peter Pan. He talks about Pinocchio Square with Geppetto's clock shop, uh, Stromboli's puppet show, a miniature traveling carnival. And a walk through the wonderful experience of Alice in Wonderland as the white rabbit takes you down the rabbit hole through the maze of doors, the rabbit's house, past the singing flowers, Dodo Rock, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, uh, climaxing in the courtroom of the Queen of Hearts. Now, again, this was going to be a walkthrough, and this was um, actually designed. There are concept sketches that exist by Imagineer uh, Bruce Bushman. Now, Bruce Bushman was a large guy, so that's how they determined the ride vehicles in... Um, 
Fantasyland is they would put Bruce in there, and if Bruce could sit there, then they figured there was plenty of room for an adult and a kid in that in that row there. So uh, Bruce came up with several concepts. Uh, sketches, including one where you would see Tweedledum and Tweedledee, and as you walked by, they would spin and hit each other and whatever. One of the things that uh, I, I liked in the concept sketches was there was the caucus race. So you came in through an entrance, and there was a revolving floor. So you just stood there, and the floor took you on this race that nobody can ever win, and in the center, here's all the characters going every which way and spinning around, and the revolving floor takes you to the exit door that takes you in uh, to the next room. But uh, Fantasyland, uh, already Walt has uh, some clear idea of what characters he wants there. So this is his first pen-to-paper, really ever description we're going to get of Fantasyland, mm-hmm. save for the walkthrough of Alice. If, it, if he right. would have said this, that's almost right out of the guide map of what Fantasyland ended up being. I mean, that's, it's, it's amazing, because usually, you know, we hear about the concepts and they, they evolve, and this evolves to eventually Disneyland. That's pretty. He knew exactly what he wanted for Fantasyland. That's pretty spot on. Well, one of the Imagineers uh, uh, told me. I, I think I believe it was John Hinch. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this. He said uh, Walt never flew off to Never Neverland without knowing exactly where he was going. And again, the Alice in Wonderland did come, uh, ride come in '58, um, I believe. And even though it was. Um, you know, the dark ride through, it covers again some of the, the scenes that are de- described here. Um, now, Walt also wanted uh, a recreation land, which is a little leisure land uh, set aside, a shady uh, park set aside for reservations by clubs or schools or other groups for picnics and outings. I, I think a lot of people, you know, they go, well, he got us in the park and he's charging us all this money for food. I grew up. Uh, going to to Disneyland in the 60s, and I remember um, mom and dad picking, uh, packing a picnic lunch, and before you went into Disneyland, over to the left, there was a little entranceway for a picnic area. So you could go into the park, get your hand stamped, come out to, the, the, to your car, get your food, go into the picnic area, and, and eat, or eat before you go in. And, you know, and that was all free. And it, it was right to the left before the ticket kiosks. And it was there, I believe, right up through the 70s. And, uh, uh, again, not really announced, but if somebody asked, they'd, they'd be uh, directed uh, uh, to that. Interestingly enough, Recreation Land eventually became uh, Holiday Land on the other side of the Frontierland tracks, but they found that people were skipping over the tracks to get into Disneyland without paying. So that came to an end. But they, they had all sorts of events at Holiday Land, like the uh, uh, Calcan uh, uh, dog show. And Calcan was running the kennels at, at that time. And Sergeant Preston of the Yukon was, was, was uh, one of the judges because he had this uh, mighty dog whose name I've, I've forgotten right now. But... Um, I think it was Yukon King. Yukon King was the name of the name of the dog here. That, that's what happens when you get, you know, I, 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 I learned something new and it pushes out two or three other things here. Well, let's go into uh, Frontier Country where the stagecoach beats the train and the riverboat for its trip down the river to New Orleans. Along Frontier Street is a harness shop and a blacksmith shop, livery stable, assayer's office, sheriff's office, and the jail. Um... You can get uh, real Western food at the chuck wagon and cowboy clothes, six shooters, or a silver-mounted saddle for your horse um, or pony at the general store. 
Uh, and then uh, you could ride shotgun on the stagecoaches past Granny's Farm, a practical working farm operated with real live miniature horses. Little realizing they were going to be shipped off in packages to, to kids. Okay, uh, miniature cows, oxen, and donkeys. And in fact, Walt did have a miniature donkey there, and but it had a tendency to bite people, <laughs> so it was not really displayed. Um, he, he even had Herb Ryman paint a portrait of the donkey because he was so <laughs> proud of the little miniature donkey there. Um, carry the mail on the Pony Express ride around the little track and take a mule pack ride with an old prospector for a guide through the colorful mother load country of the pioneer days. Now, the Pony Express ride at one time, the design for that was you were going to be on moving horses and in front of you was going to be this huge motion picture screen. And so what was happening is as you were riding, it was matching the movement of the motion picture screen. And so you were having that real experience. And so remember, Western's hugely, hugely popular in the 50s. Yeah, and again, you know, Frontierland, too, he's already talking about things like the ferry boat. And he's talking about the, the using the real mules. He mentions New Orleans. Obviously, Disneyland gets New Orleans Square at some point. So, you know, you wonder... Uh, what he had actually envisioned in his mind that he had to sort of consolidate down to an eight-page document. But again, Frontierland, much like Fantasyland, very much true to what he has on this uh, initial document. And then, of course, uh, he talks about uh, the Mickey Mouse Club. And the Mickey Mouse Club, the best-known personality in the world, has uh, his Mickey Mouse Club headquarters in Disneyland, located on Treasure Island in the middle of the river, a fantastic uh, hollow tree and uh, serves as the club's meeting place. The hollow tree is several stories high with uh, interesting rooms and lookout spots for club members. There is a pirate cove uh, and buried treasure on the island. And direct from this location, the club presents the Mickey Mouse Club television show. <laughs> and again, too, you know, Walt, so brilliant in his vision because the importance of TV and the Mickey Mouse Club and bringing that into the parks and, and introducing the guests to it and letting guests experience it there, obviously making them viewers when they got back home if they weren't viewers already. And remember, this is September 26, 1953. So the Mickey Mouse show is not even going to premiere for a couple of years. And even the Disneyland TV show, not until 1954. Uh, you know, and so, uh, of course, Walt was using that as that leverage, that bargain, is if you want a TV show, you've got to buy the park. And, of course, ABC wanted that park, wanted that show so badly, they, they uh, uh, bought into the park. And so for $500,000, they got one-third of Disneyland. Actually, it's about 33% and, and some... Uh, points and they had to guarantee five million dollars of bank loans, but ABC couldn't guarantee five million dollars of bank loans. So Leonard Goldstein of um, ABC actually had to go to a Texas millionaire he knew to have that guy write that he would cover five million dollars. <laughs> and so ABC, uh, right up until you know uh, the e-tickets there in uh, 1959, owned a third of the park. A third of the park was owned by Walt Disney Productions. Uh, 17% was owned by Walt, and uh, 13% uh, 
by Western Publishing that published the comic books and the story books and uh, uh, all of that. And so the initial investment in Disneyland was $1.5 million because they were absolutely sure it was not going to go beyond $5 million. You know, that, that's insane. And, of course, as we know, it went up to $17 million. And maybe even a little bit more than that, because Herb told me that towards the end there, of course, they were having cash flow problems, so they couldn't pay bills. Uh, so some poor guy was taking these bills when they came in and was shoving them in a desk drawer. So it was months after Disneyland opened that somebody opened that drawer and found all these unpaid bills. Oh, my gosh. And so Walt wanted a holiday land, and it's interesting that some of the things he wanted in holiday land um, actually happen in the parks uh, today. Uh, holiday land is a showplace of special attractions that change with the season. Its theme is as current as the calendar. Its decorations, entertainment, or exhibits follow the flowers in spring. So there was going to be a uh, flower and garden festival. Actually, he just calls it the Flower Festival, but that's what it was going to be. Uh, a Mardi Gras, special Easter activities, Mother's Day. Summer brings July, uh, the 4th of July activities. And circus time with a circus parade down Main Street and a one-ring circus. Uh, in the fall, uh, there'd be a Harvest Festival, a Halloween special, a Girl Scout Week, a Winter with its ice skating rink, sleigh rides, and bobsled hill with real snow, and Christmas tree lane that leads to Santa's home at the North Pole. Again, in some form or fashion, we have pretty much all of that, other than sort of the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, but we've got those seasonal, I mean, he saw ahead of time, we need to keep rotating things and changing things, giving people reason to come back during the different times of year because their experience will be different much like it is here. Christmas in Walt Disney World is very different than coming any other time of year. And there's a reason to come for the not-so-scary Halloween party and things like that. He mentions, like you said, the Flower Festival. We have, obviously, the Flower and Garden Festival. So uh, it, it's just fascinating to me. Again, this is document one. This is not something that came out in 1982. Mm -hmm. This is 53. And, yes, I, I think a lot of uh, Disney fans are a little hesitant when uh, uh, the Disney company comes out and does something and says, well, this is what Walt wanted. You know, sometimes, really? How do you know what Walt wanted? And, and I'm a little sus suspicious of this quote because it has an ellipses in it. Ellipses are those three little dots. So you have Walt starting to talk, and then suddenly there's three little dots, and there's a, it's like, there could have been paragraphs in those three little dots. What, what, what's going on? See, and again, this is one of the reasons that uh, Disney desperately needs... Um, uh, a Disney historian, somebody who understands the stories. Now, the archives is terrific because the archives archives the material. So the material is there. But what a historian does is a historian then finds that material and interprets it and brings out the story. And so, you know, how amazing would it be if the Disney company said, yes, we're having the Flower and Garden Festival, uh, but this is a salute to Walt Disney, who in 1953... This was his original vision for Disneyland. This is what he felt guests needed and wanted. In fact, Dick Irvine said when we were working on that storyboard, the reason we came up with the uh, uh, sections that we did was Walt kept saying, what do guests need? So it wasn't trying to shove down their throat of, here it is and you'll like this. It's, I've looked at people and I understand that. And in fact, 
you know, early Disneyland, when it opened, it was constantly um, uh, uh, changing because um, that's why you didn't call them rides. You called them attractions because there was the realization that this was a film experience. Uh, the famous story, of course, is Walt was um, uh, uh, sitting uh, on, the, uh, on a bench by the uh, Rivers of America watching the uh, Mark Twain, and there was an elderly couple there. And again, Walt wasn't as well known as, of course, he would later become by constantly hosting the TV show. And he loved talking to the guests, and uh, uh, he, he asked them what they liked in Disneyland, and, and the woman said, oh, my husband loves the Mark Twain, and I can't get him off uh, uh, the train, but we don't go on any of the rides. We don't like rides. And so that's why they stopped becoming rides. They became attractions. Um, not all of the pathways were uh, originally made in Disneyland because Walt said, the people will tell you where they want to walk. <laughs> Watch them. <laughs> and, and, and that's true. You, you know that uh, if a house is on a corner lot, people don't go to the edge and around. Usually they try to cut across the lawn to, to get to the other side. So Walt was always taking a look at, you know, what was going to work uh, for the people. And so uh, let's wrap this up with uh, uh, what Walt wrote on the last page. And again, he's desperately trying to convince these people to buy into this project. And uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, but on Roy's trip, no interest at all. You know, uh, uh, it wasn't until uh, uh, November, uh, October that, you know, things started to fall into place. Uh, Disneyland will be the essence of America as we know it. The nostalgia of the past with exciting glimpses into the future. It will give meaning to the pleasure of the children and pleasure to the experience of adults. It will focus a new interest upon Southern California through the mediums of television and other exploitation. It will be a place for California to be at home, to bring its guests, to demonstrate its faith in the future. And mostly, as stated in the beginning, it will be a place for people to find happiness and knowledge. And that's a pretty accurate description of the Disney parks. And look, you know, people talk about Disneyland as the place that Walt walked, and because of that it has a special importance to it. And so many other people are credited, appropriately so, with the development of Walt Disney World, because obviously Walt wasn't here. But that document is important because it shows how much of his influence really did come to what we have even today, 2010, in Walt Disney World, and how his vision was carried forward uh, by the people who he left behind. And he may not have actually walked down Main Street, but his influence and his words are definitely there on Main Street, in Future World, in Hollywood Studios, in, in Africa and Animal's Kingdom. And again, remember, we're having the same team build the Magic Kingdom. Uh, you have Dick Irvine. In fact, we even have a, a steamboat named after Richard uh, Irvine. Uh, Marvin Davis doing the, the same design work. Herb Ryman. So people who had worked closely with Walt and understood his vision. But they also understood that an important part of his vision is, I don't want to duplicate myself. I don't want a carbon copy. Let's expand on what we've learned. And so Magic Kingdom has some of those best elements of Disneyland, but it also has the Imagineers starting to explore how could we have done this better if we had more space, if we had more money. 
you know, and not just making something larger. Uh, Tony Baxter, the Imagineer Tony Baxter, um, who really is a keeper of the stories. You're a good guy, Tony. Um, Tony Baxter said that uh, Disneyland uh, is an intimate experience, but that Walt Disney World is a spectacular experience. And again, that's why they didn't want certain things. They didn't want a Pirates of the Caribbean because, well, that should be, you know, to Disneyland, what we'll do out here is we'll do Big Thunder Mesa, you know, because pirates, we're close to where real pirates were. But that was one of the things that people wanted. Country Bear Jamboree first came to Walt Disney World, you know, and then went to, uh, to Disneyland, uh, Space Mountain, you know, so, uh, Magic Kingdom was to experiment with some of these concepts, some of these beliefs, some of this philosophy that Walt had even in uh, uh, 1953. So as we celebrate uh, Disney's uh, birthday, July uh, 17th, uh, 2010, and of course, as most Disney birthdays, this will go on for a, for a year or, or we don't know how long it'll go on, but at least a year, uh, maybe take a little time on September 26th uh, to uh, celebrate this was the real beginning of Disneyland because up until then there was nothing really written down. There, there were some concept sketches and as I said Marvin Davis had done some designs but it wasn't until Herbert Ryman drew that painting which again got ad adapted. Peter Ellenshaw did a, 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 a painting on a, on a storyboard which Walt used on the TV show and it's closer to what the, the actual park uh, became but it was that weekend 42 hours that has really changed the world and when you see that painting again and when you think about that story and you see that, that it's Herb Ryman's pen that was put to paper remember that it was his pen to paper but Walt guiding his hand over that weekend. That's not Herb's concept of what Disneyland should be. That was Walt's concept of Disneyland and what it should be. In fact, Herb told me, and and again, he, he had a really dry sense of humor. And when I talked with him about the, that uh, sketch, he says, you know, and this was decades later, so I didn't talk to him until the 80s. And he said, you know, I still feel the heat of Walt's breath on the back of my neck. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the, and that's why that picture is so important. That's why that document is so important. I'm so happy you were kind enough to share something that I have never heard. I don't think most people who are listening probably ever even knew was in existence. And to hear Walt's words uh, and, and think about what we have today and look at that picture and look at what's progressed here since 71 and Disneyland since 55. Uh, he was true. I mean, he was a genius and he was truly ahead of his time. And I think that the people who have followed him, we talk all about the, the what would Walt do? What would Walt think? And there is no way. That's an unfair question. But if you look at that document and take the sort of philosophy from it and say, you think outside the box, you do what has never been done before. You can do the impossible. You can dream it and you can. And look, he dreamt it in 53 and it might not have happened in 55, but he eventually was able to do it. And also most important, I think, in that philosophy is it's the guests. Put yourself in the, the shoes of the guests, the ones who are waiting in the queue line, the ones who are standing out in the sun, the ones who have to come up with that money to, to, to buy that uh, uh, Coke. You know, um, uh, what 
do they really need? And that's why Disney was uh, so successful with the movies and also with the park is he gave people what they needed and what they wanted because it was always done from their perspective. When Walt was criticized, well, that's too corny or whatever, he says, I like corn. And a lot of other people obviously like it as well. And one of the things that's important too, reading this is all of these things were designed specifically for the entire family to enjoy them. There's no height restrictions. None of these things say, well, on this attraction, you have to be at least 47 inches tall or you can't go on and, and enjoy it. I was talking with Lou earlier that I wish there were many, many more uh, attractions like uh, Small World where a grandfather can take on, you know, his great-granddaughter and they can both enjoy the, the uh, attraction. They don't have to worry about, am I the right size to, to fit in here? Is the, and they'll enjoy it at different levels, but they'll enjoy it together because an amusement park separated families and it was chaotic. And I'm starting to see elements of that in Disney parks now, too, where, where it's loud and it's chaotic. And only uh, I was I wandered around in the park earlier today and the parents really wanted to go on Splash Mountain. But the two little kids did not want that that drop. Fortunately, Disney does su- supply a little waiting area where they can go and and play. But it's not the same thing. You want to experience it together. And what is important for the guests? Don't tell the guests they want this. Ask the guests and then develop from there. And look, you know, he says it in here and it, it's been documented so many times elsewhere that that together time, that family time was of most importance. And look, when we talked about One Man's Dream and, and some of the things, we talked about recognizing Walt Disney, the person. Um, and that's what this document helps to do is, is personalize Walt Disney and... and his influence uh, on the parks. Uh, he's not a brand. He's not a logo. He's not Mickey Mouse. There was a person that drove this, and that document illustrates that there was one man that really drove that vision forward. And, and everything that we have today really does stem from probably you can trace it back to that first document. And Lou, again, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And to the Disney Company, I am willingly available to be a resource if you want it. And for the rest of you, I'm available for children's birthday parties and bar mitzvahs. Uh, contact me through Lou. And, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell those little uh, four-year-olds some uh, Disney history stories. It's much more entertaining than balloon animals and, uh, and uh, cheesy magic tricks. But, again, thank you so much, Lou. And for those of you who are listening... Remember that you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility now to share these stories with others. Well, uh, Lou says that I'm generous in terms of sharing this material. I'm doing this so that the stories do not die. You are the ones that are going to have to keep it alive. And Lou, again, thank you so much. And, and thank you for the meal. And even without dessert, uh, th- this, w- this was a wonderful experience. I guess next time there's dessert. People are like, you're so cheap, Lou. You don't buy it. The guy shares that with you? You don't even give him dessert? Uh, listen, Victorian Alberts, you know, we can only be in there for so many hours, Jim. And then they finally kick us out. But, yeah. No, the thanks do go to you. Um, because instead of keeping these as my stories where I've got this incredible document that I'm not going to share, uh, you are doing a service to the people who are listening who do hopefully carry these stories forward. Um, you do it on the show, for which I'm so grateful. 
you document so many more in Celebrations Magazine, which are just wonderful. So uh, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to doing this again soon. And yes, you mentioned Celebrations Magazine. Wonderful magazine. Love the writing of Jim Corcus in there. Make sure you guys uh, subscribe. And again, thank you, Lou. Looking forward to doing this again in the future many times. And now, here is Walt Disney. Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called uh, Disney World project. Everything in this room may change time and time again as we move ahead. But the basic philosophy of what we're planning for Disney World is going to remain very much as it is right now. We know what our goals are. We know what we hope to accomplish. And believe me, it's the most exciting and challenging assignment we've ever tackled at Walt Disney Production.